I shall rise from the dead. I shall see the Son of God, the Son of glory, and shine myself as that sun shines. I shall be united to the Ancient of Days, to God Himself, who had no morning, never began. No man ever saw God and lived. And yet, I shall not live till I see God. And when I have seen Him, I shall never die. Those are the words of John Dunn, an old English poet and preacher in a sermon of old. A beautiful thing that I think captures what we're talking about today. In our current season and series, we are seeking to keep our minds on things above. And last week, we examined a little bit of what the kingdom of heaven is like. And I was going to stay on the kingdom of heaven for a few weeks, but I, I'm impatient. I'm impatient. I want to go ahead and, and, and skip ahead to what the King of Heaven is like. What the King of Heaven is like. So I want to invite you to open in your Bibles Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4. And we're going to look at the, the entire chapter. Of course, we can't uh, examine everything in detail, but I want us to, to look at the entire chapter, verses 1 through 11, as we think about what the King of Heaven is. Is like. Revelation 4 says this. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. And around the throne were 24 thrones and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. And out from the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion, and the second creature like a calf. And the third creature had a face like that of a man, and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. And day and night, they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who sits on the throne, to Him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before Him who sits on the throne and will worship Him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are You, O Lord and our God, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For You created all things and because of Your will they existed and were created. The first thing that I think we have to see in this passage as we think 
about what the kingdom of heaven is like is there is a throne and one seated on the throne. There is a throne and one seated on the throne. It's a vision and experience of the almighty king of heaven. John is invited to enter. He is spiritually transported through a door into heaven. And then he is to be shown scenes of what is to come. In other words, the book of Revelation, I think, encompasses all the rest of human history and redemptive history and eternity. But first, before he gets all of the, what we would call end times events, these are things that fascinate and boggle the mind, things on which all of us will never agree, but we can ponder before the events, before the things that really captivate many of us as we study the Bible, thinking about the mark of the beast, thinking about the rapture, thinking about the millennium. Again, captivating, fascinating things. There is something more captivating in heaven to John than the events that he is about to see, and that is there is a throne. There is a central throne that, that is the first thing that captivates John the Revelator. His attention goes to the throne. Actually, it's not just the throne that's fascinating. It is one who is seated on the throne. So there is a throne and one seated on the throne. And of course, we know that a throne represents power and sovereignty and rule and reign and authority. And John talks about that enthroned king that he saw. He describes in verse 3, you can look at it, he says, his appearance. So, so he's trying to describe the one enthroned. His appearance is like jasper stone and sardius. Those two stones are the last and the first jewels in the high priest of the Old Testament's breastplate. So maybe there's a little bit of high priest imagery. Or maybe the high priest, those first and last stones, when, when the Jewish people would think about that, they would think about the high priest who allowed them to come before the God of heaven. But anyway, I think personally, Jasper and Sardius or Carnelian, these different jewels that we see, I'm, I'm pretty simple with my explanations and understanding of these things, so I think there's a lot interesting to think about. Jasper, if you look at Revelation 21.11, it says this, it says it's very costly and it's clear. It's diamond-like. And so there is this very costly imagery, something beautiful, something really rare there at the throne and seated on the throne. That is, God himself is gleaming and seen as infinitely valuable, more valuable than anything, as pure. And there is a shining or a radiance and a magnificence about him that John is caught up looking at him. Sometimes this is called the beatific vision. That means the happy-making sight. The sight that makes us utterly and completely happy. The beatific vision in theologians' minds is a self-directed, a direct self-communication from God. In other words, it's seeing God. If you hear that phrase, the beatific vision, it's seeing God. And that's exactly what is happening here in Revelation 4. John says there's a throne. And there is one seated on the throne at the very center. Now, there's more than one throne. 
But the main thing is the one throne. And God Himself. The next thing we see in this passage is John describes the appearance and the attendance of the throne. The appearance and the attendance. That is those who attend around the throne. It's not just the throne. There all around there are sights to behold and, and creatures and beings to see. And John describes those too. There is this beautiful display and this brilliance that's all around the throne that he describes. First thing he says, there's a rainbow around the throne like an emerald. A rainbow around the throne like an emerald. And of course, when we think about a rainbow in biblical terms, our mind goes back to the story of Noah and the flood. You know, in the story of Noah and the flood, what we see is God's judgment comes on a wicked world. But in His mercy, He saves out a family. The family of Noah. By God's mercy, He saves in the midst of judgment. And of course, when the floods recede, the waters recede, God gives a symbol, a sign that He will not destroy the world by flood again. And so the rainbow, of course, in biblical terms, the thing about the covenant between God and man is to say, that, you know, God is a God of mercy in the midst of His judgment. But again, I think when I think of a rainbow, you know what I think? Ooh, pretty. Don't we see a rainbow? And now, you know, you pull out your phone, right? You, you try to get the perfect rainbow picture and you send it to somebody and you show people that you saw this rainbow because, look, it's just, it's just beautiful. I was thinking about the, uh, the northern lights. You know, it's hard, to, it's hard to get up here and talk about and make fascinating, you know, colorful things. Because <laughs> you want to see them. Don't tell me about them. I want to see them, but I can't do that. And so with the eyes of our spirit and mind, we have to think about what? What is John seeing and describing for us so that we can understand what it's like around that throne? He talks about this, this beautiful appearance of light. I thought about the northern lights, the aurora borealis. You know, millions of people flock to the higher, um, uh, oh, it's not altitudes, what is it? Latitude, tell me that. The upper latitudes, they go up, you know, Iceland and around Sweden and Alaska, there's places. How many of y'all have been and traveled to see the Aurora Borealis or the Northern Lights? I knew, I knew some had. What? What? It's colorful, right? And you just can't describe in words hardly what you would see. But, but you know what? It must be something that is life-changing. Otherwise, why would millions of people every year flock to go look at lights. One visitor said of the northern lights, viewing the northern lights is almost like heavenly visual music. See, you see, we stretch and we, and we grasp for other connection points to describe the beauty of lights. And John is doing that very thing. And so there is, what I would just say, is this magnificent, brilliant, colorful, you don't see this anywhere else kind of a thing that he's telling us about. And then the next thing he says, there's a sea of glass. A sea of glass, or it resembled a sea. I don't think it's actually, you know, a sea. But he says, there's this, there's this, just, just shining. He describes it as a sea of glass. I remember one night as a kid being out on Beaver Lake with my grandparents. 
And you know, just before the sun was about to set, we went out on the lake. And we'd been out on the lake actually all day, and I was really frustrated because I was trying to learn how to water ski. And uh, you know, the water was real choppy, there's boats zigging in and out, but every time I'd start to get up, uh, you know, a wake or a wave or crashing down, I was really frustrated. And uh, I remember going out that night, and we got in the water, and it was just this beautiful, calm. I mean, there was not a ripple in the water. That's been 30 some odd years ago, and I still remember that sight of that big open expanse of water, like a sea of glass. And you know what happened there that night as I was looking at that water, what was fascinating was that as I looked at that water and its surface and all of its stillness, it was reflecting the things that were going on above the water. I could see trees. I could see myself. I could see birds flying across the sky as I looked down into that water. And even in that stillness, you know what else I could see? I could see what was going on down below the water. I could, I mean, you couldn't quite see bottom, but you could see fish and structures and all kinds of things. Fascinating. It was just, again, it's one of those things, I guess you had to be there. <laughs> And I thought about this sea of glass. Or like a sea of glass. And, and maybe, you know, some people believe in interpreting that. They say, you know, what, what, what the idea there is that God on his, in His heavens is up above the earth, the firmament, and the waters that are above the earth. And here is heaven. And I think that gets really close. I think the idea is that experience I had on that lake that night is that God's throne. He is privy to everything that is above, and there's nothing higher. And also, with that sea of crystal clear, I think what it's telling us is God knows exactly what is going on down below. He sees everything. He is ruling and He is reigning in heaven, but He is also exercising His sovereign rule and reign on the earth. Do you ever feel like sometimes God has forgotten us here? We see the things going on around the world and sometimes it's just things in our own hearts and families and lives and we look and we say, God, are you there? Are you watching? He's there. And He's privy to all of it. There is that sea of glass. There are 24 elders also enthroned. And they have white garments. And they have crowns, it says. Now, some people said 24 elders, that's probably meant to represent that, you know, you've got the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles, you combine those, you got 24, so maybe it's, but I, what I'll tell you is there's no way that it's the 12 apostles and the 12 heads of the tribes of Israel, because in both of those groups, you had folks that are not going to be in heaven, I would say. I do think it could be possible to represent all of the redeemed, I don't think that's, what it means, or another, there's another 24 in the Bible that's in First Chronicles with the priestly order. There were also 24 elders in that priestly order. Could be representative of that. You know what I think they are? I think they're heavenly celestial beings, what we might call loosely angels. I think the angels are organized in authoritative realms. Okay? And I think these are the highest of the angels. That's what I understand it to be. You can disagree with that. 
You could be wrong. I could be wrong. But here's what it says. There are 24 elders. And those thrones, these are people with rank among men. But they're nothing compared to God. There are flashes of lightning. There's peals of thunder. Then it says there are seven burning lamps which represent the seven spirits of God. Now that really messes us up. Like, well, I thought there was only one spirit of God. It's the spirit of God in all fullness. Seven spirits of God burning like a light or like a flaming lamp. So he says then there's all these you know, lightnings and peals of thunder. I'll tell you, it's just a, a, a feast for the senses. And then he says this, and he's really fascinated. John says, and then around the throne, I saw four living creatures. Are they angels? They're, they're creatures. They're creatures. And he describes them. Very similar to something that uh, Ezekiel saw in his heavenly vision as well. But there were these creatures. And, and one has a face like a man. One a face like a lion. One a face like a, a calf or cattle or an oxen. And one with a face like an eagle. And so they all have these different faces. But then the part that really freaks you out, he says they're covered with six wings. Well, I can deal with that. And then they got eyeballs all around them. experience on earth. People look for symbolism in that and they say, well, you know, man is the chief of the created being, so uh, uh, you get lion, kind of the king of, the, of the, the jungle, you got cattle which really are the king of the livestock, and then you've got the eagle which is the most majestic or the king of the sky, if you will, and in and, and that symbolism there, it's meant to say that all of creation subjected to God. Maybe it means that. What do you do with all those eyeballs? And those wings. Here's what I do with it. Man, that's something. But maybe it's this. Maybe it's with six wings and all those eyes. They are privy to access to anything that happens anywhere. Those wings can get them anywhere. And maybe those eyeballs are to say that they, they know and see What's going on in all the creative realm? And hey, there is no place that they would rather be than as close to the very throne of God as they can get. Maybe that's what it means. I don't know, but there are these creatures. And that's what John calls them. Creatures, four living creatures. And again, what I would say, regardless of how you understand it symbolically, here's something you can know for sure. You can know what they're doing. You can know what this, these creatures are doing in heaven. Here's what they're doing. They are worshiping the one who is seated on the throne. That leads me to the last point today. The awe and adoration around the very throne of God. The awe and the adoration around the very throne of God. These creatures who could go anywhere could see anything. There is nothing more fascinating, nothing more beautiful, nothing more awe-inspiring, nothing more glorious than God Himself and being as close to His very presence. And here's what they say as they are in awe of God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Think about that for just a second. Holy is the Lord God Almighty. Now, we're going we're to say that this is worship in heaven. Some people say they're singing. 
If, if these creatures are singing, are they singing bluegrass? Are they singing country? Are they singing gospel? Are they singing contemporary worship songs? Are you going to be happy there if it's not with your favorite kind of song? Some people say they're not singing at all. They're saying. Some people say, no, it's, it's somewhere in between. Maybe it's like a Gregorian chant. Here's what it could be. It could be a word to set the music. You know what you call that? Rap. <laughs> you know, you know I, here's how I am with, with Christian music. I can handle and, and like and appreciate just about any of it. The rap part, I'm going, I, that's the one. I don't know if I can handle it. And they're rapping in heaven. Possibly. We're not told. And you know what? It does not matter. Because the substance of what they're saying is what matters. And here's what they're saying. Holy, holy, holy is this God. Holy speaks of moral excellence. It's a, a beauty of character. You know what it is? It's, it's an otherness. It means it, this is not a common thing. To be holy is to not be profane or not to be amongst commonly used things. It's something that demands our attention because it is special. It is other than anything else. It is different. Belongs to God. Holiness. God is holy in His moral excellence and beauty. Things can be holy in the Bible. People can be holy in as much as they are set apart for God. Cities can be holy. Utensils can be holy. Food can be made holy. Only in as much as it is seen as belonging and appropriate to God Himself. Because God is holy. Only God is fully and perfectly holy. And so they say it three times. He is thrice holy. You know, I need to stop here and just say this. I would beware, if I were you, of attributing sinful things to a holy God. This is really popular today to say God told me to do such and such and it's something that is utterly sinful and wicked and evil and totally at odds with His Word. I would beware of attributing. It's fine to say, I want to do such and such. Or I think such and such is fine. But when you say, God told me to do this. Or God made me like this. And it is wicked. You are in dangerous ground. And one of the ways that you can judge that is to say, is what I'm seeing and hearing or feeling or talking about, does it correspond to the character of God? I'm afraid there are a lot of people who really have no clue about God today other than there's a big being up in the sky somewhere. But God, the true God, is holy, perfect, and righteous. He's almighty. They say He's holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty. He is all-powerful. He is above those four creatures. He is above every angel. He's above every one of us. He's above the president. He's above, above any king. He is almighty. There is nothing. I love that old song we sing as kids. There is nothing my God cannot do. Is his arm so short that he can't save? No. Is there some place or thing or problem that he can't reach? No. He is almighty God. And then they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. He is eternal. 
God is the only truly eternal thing. We can talk about having eternal life, meaning we live forever. But it's not truly eternal life. It's eternal in the sense that it goes on forever and ever. But only God is eternal. There are creatures that have their beginning and then they have their end. We can think about the beasts of the field. I don't think there's any indication that dogs, squirrels, elephants, lions, eagles, when they die, their spirit lives on forever. Are there animals in heaven? Well, you'll have to come back another day and find that out. But there are beings that have their beginning and they have their end and they cease to be. Then there are beings that have a beginning but have no end. And I think that is angelic beings and human beings. There is no end. There is no annihilation. Death is not the end. The soul goes on forever. But only one being is truly the one who was forever and is and is to come. And that is God. And so John is fascinated by that. He's in awe of that. These creatures are in awe of that. And so they sing about it. And it leads them to adoration. There is awe. You know, when something, we think about the word awful being bad, don't we? Something is awful. That's something to be avoided. But here, if we say God is awesome, how about that? God defies being totally defined. We'll never fully comprehend God, though we'll understand and know Him more fully, I think, for all of eternity. But in all of His awesomeness, you know what? He is worthy of our adoration. So verse 9, these living creatures, they can see everything, they can go anywhere, and they're right here, and they see God, and they give Him the glory and the honor and the thanks He is due. And they say this, worthy are you, O Lord, for you created everything. Everything that is, is because you willed it to be. You created it. You fashioned it. You made it through whatever processes. You designed it. You brought it into being. You are the judge of it all. And it's to be judged by you. Worthy are you to be worshipped. The word worship means something that is worthy of our adoration. It's worthy of our coming under it and submitting to it. And so they say, worthy are you? And all of a sudden, these 24 elders, whoever they are, whatever they are, that have crowns on their head, they have thrones. <clears throat> they hear this song or this chant or this thing initiated by the heavenly creatures. And they come up out of their thrones and they fall to their face. And it says they cast their crowns before his throne. You know what worship is? Worship is bowing before the thing that is worthy. The thing that is awesome and worthy of our adoration and our submission and coming underneath it. And in their worship, they are giving thanks. You know, in these 24 elders' worship, I see a posture that is good for us to think about emulating. When we worship God, we get off our thrones and we recognize His throne. Worship is not about me and what I want. It's about Him and who He is and that He is worthy for me to come underneath and to put the focus on Him. Worship is about God. 
And it requires a posture that recognizes God. It's a response to the revelation of God. That's my favorite definition of worship is revelation and response. It's a revelation of God's greatness, and it's our appropriate response to that. So, He's worthy of worship. Every good thing comes from God. Everything, period, comes from God. He's the owner of all. He's the King of Heaven. And here's the thing about Heaven. God takes the place of supremacy, and He's honored by every creature that belongs there. But did you know that there are creatures who have been before the very throne of God, but they don't worship. They understand who God is, and in their pride and wicked hearts, they say, I'll not worship you. Satan, the fallen angels, are such creatures, and they'll not belong in heaven. They'll not be there in eternity. Demons believe in God, and they even shudder at His power. But they don't submit. And they don't bow the knee to Him. Could I say that I think it's possible that that same dynamic could exist with humans? And we could be fully aware of God's greatness, His power, His existence. And not bow the knee of our heart. These people that worship say, verse 11, worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive honor and glory and power. You know what that means? God, I give lay everything at your feet. I don't want the adoration. I don't want the acclaim. I don't want the praise. I don't want to act like this crown that I have is something that I got by my power, but it belongs to you. So worship is not about us. It's about Him. It's about seeing and savoring the majesty of His greatness. So I say to you today, do you want to know what the King of Heaven is like? He's enthroned in the highest place. He occupies the highest place. He is without beginning and end. He is almighty. He is beautiful. His purposes will stand. He is holy. He is totally pure and righteous and unblemished and unsoiled in all of His ways and in His very character. He has no part of sin. No part of sin, no vestige of sin in Him. He's adorned with living colors. Clothed in rainbows. Lightning and thunder, we think about being some of the most powerful forces in the created realm. Those things are His servants. He's adorned with them. And He is the judge of all. And you have these two beautiful characteristics of being just and right and hating sin and hating what suppresses the glory of God and hurts other people. And so you have this strong, powerful judgment and you have this characteristic over here of a crazy love and mercy. And the Bible says that that judge of all the universe is not willing that we would perish, but that we would come to repentance and receive mercy and salvation so that we might be among the throngs around His throne. The most beautiful place 
that you can imagine. Far beyond anything, actually, that we can imagine. And He is powerful and almighty and His purposes will stand. Though kings and nations rage against Him, though you can thumb your nose at Him and say, I'll do what I want, one day you'll stand before that God. And you'll give an account. And the only way that you will be able to stand is actually to fall down on your face and say, the only way I can come before you is by the way that you provide. That's by the blood of Jesus. Because I have understood your pure and holy judgment. And I came to Jesus for the mercy that you offer. The only way that we'll be able to be before that throne is that we have been made pure and right. We have been saved by the mercy of Christ. Will you be there? Hey, do you see this? planned you and formed you and me before the foundations of creation. Is He calling to you today to heed His greatness and His mercy and to be saved? To come and to live for Him? I can tell you He has issued the call. Come to Him. Close this service by singing and invite our worship team to come. And they're going to lead us in a song that comes almost verbatim straight out of Revelation chapter 4. It's called the Revelation Song. So we're going to, we're going to worship. Having done my best to present what this scripture says, we want to respond to that. Sing like the heavenly creatures, sing all the beauty and the majesty and the greatness of our God because He is worthy. He's worthy. Someone invite you to stand. We're going to sing, and during this time, we'll be right over here to the side. If you're here today and you want to respond to the mercy of Christ and be saved. Come and make that profession of faith. There are no closet Christians. No closet Christians. Only those who publicly profess Jesus as Lord and accept His mercy. So you come today if you need to do that. For the rest of us, let's sing. And let us pray.